Well, there is a story in South Africa, which I think a lot of people think they know well, uh, the story of Daisy Demelka, who really is one of the most uh, interesting women in, uh, in killer history. I think there've been enough documentaries about women who kill their husbands. There are enough women sitting in prison all over the world who've killed their husbands and others. But the Daisy Demelka story is a very South African story, and it's told at a time and in a place which you really couldn't replicate anywhere else. So Ted Boiter, who's my guest, has written an amazing book about her, and he is here to tell us all about it this morning. So Ted, first of all, welcome to you. Nice to see you, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure. What a pleasure. So what made you interested in doing the Daisy DeMelka story, which, I mean, some people would have said it's been done and maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. But I mean, your book is definitely a new take on a lot of this stuff. Well, I mean, that was what what, uh, kind of surprised me when I started digging into it. I was doing research about the period. And so like 1913 onwards about something completely different about how there was a Hollywood starting in Joburg at the time, Mm -hmm. which was not, it's not very well known. So, you know, Killani was a movie producing studio and. But this is all part of the gold rush. Yeah. No, this is kind of, uh, I don't know, these strange things that were happening in Joburg that almost made it like a New York or a London or kind of trying to be like the rest of the world, the big rest of the world and so i started digging up all these other characters and then daisy started popping up and then some other charlatans and killers and criminals and i tried to kind of incorporate it all into the movie book um to make it a movie murder book and then i thought no this is way too much of a story to to leave with another one and so i just made it into a a murder book and it was like I started reading up about Daisy and discovering that actually her story hadn't properly been told before. Mm. So that was no, no, kind of got me on this trail. Listen, there's so much stuff in here that I learned that I had no idea about. And I said in the introduction, it was a certain time and place in South Africa and the world. There was nowhere else that this story could have unfolded. And I think you've called it ragtime Johannesburg mm-hmm. because that's really what the international, the global context for this was. Mm -hmm. But Joburg was probably one of the most exciting places in the world at that point. Totally, totally. And I mean, the reaction that I've had from people who have read it is that it they never realized Joburg was this place, you know, that there there was such a place that existed, that it was on the level of a London or New York, and it had its own little like Jack the Ripper or, (laughs) or any kind of famous serial killer out there. And um, I think because it brings in so much other stuff that was happening at the time, that kind of makes it this world story. And I mean, as they said at the time, she should have been, she should have been on the world stage. I mean, she was publicized in a lot of uh, international newspapers when her trial came about, but you know, then she fell into kind of history and was forgotten by the rest of the world. But I mean, she really deserves to be on the world stage. Well, we hate to spoil this for anybody who hasn't ever read a history book about Johannesburg in the early 1900s, but Daisy doesn't make it to the end. Um, <laughs> well, she makes it to the end of her life, but it's kind of a tragic and, and, and again, such fascinating facts uh, that came out about her in this book. So how much of the primary source material was still around for you to look at? And what kind of stuff did you look at? Like microfiches of old newspapers? I wish, I wish there was microfiches. I mean, that's the sad state of a lot of South African archives is that those newspapers you should be able to rely on are all still newspapers if they exist at all and they're all disintegrating in 
in library vaults somewhere. And so, I mean, I did manage to get through some of them, but it's such a long chore and you don't really know which paper to go into except those months of her trial. Sure. So luckily I got into the Rand Daily Mail, um, which has been digitized, which was an amazing resource. And then the court, the court records, but you've also got to realize with Daisy, she was famous for a very short time. Mm. So given that she was famous for like the two months that she was on trial, one for preparatory hearing in Germiston and then the Supreme Court trial. I mean, she's really famous because that's all anybody knows about her is what came out in those trials. So there were like 60 witnesses, friends, family, doctors, scientists, whatever. And what they gave away about Daisy is what we know today. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the kind of stuff you might want to know, like, uh, not why she did it, because nobody would ever have found that out, or um, where she lived between certain ages in her life. Why did she move from Grahamstown mm. to Rhodesia at, at a young age? You know, there were a lot of background questions that you'll never get answered because it was nobody ever wrote about her except what came out of those trials. So, I mean, anything you read about her online or wherever has come out of those trials was being fabricated. Like, there's a lot of stuff online which is totally. Not has true. been fabricated, right. So this is an interesting thing because all I knew about Daisy DeMelke before reading your book was that she was this woman who poisoned her son, that she was hanged for that, and she was only the second woman in South African history to have been hanged. Yeah. And then, of course, the only other thing I knew was that terrible picture of her kind of looking – she almost looks like she had a stroke. I mean, she just, it's not a great picture, not very flattering. Yeah, but it is a mugshot given. Yeah, right? well, I mean, it, it kind of reminded me of that actress who played – um the mom and throw mama off the train, you know, that's true, right? She looks like that. And that's all I knew about her until I picked up your book and to see how much was part of the mythology and how much had to be disproved and also how much could have been true. And you could play on that a, a, a little bit. Just tell us about her origin story. You know, when you talk about superheroes now, Marvel comic superheroes or villains, there has to be an origin story. So, so where did her whole story start? So she was one of, she was the middle of 11 children and they grew up outside Grahamstown. And I gather she was from British, uh, the 1820 British settler stock. Terrible stock. Um, <laughs> Terrible. I've, I've got one line of my dad's family from those. These people had to get out of England quite quickly. They were either being persecuted or they were being chased down by people they owed money or they were just adventurers. But either way, these are not categories of people who are particularly stable. Yeah, well, I mean, her dad had this really interesting surname of Hancorn Smith. And so yeah. he was Stringfellow Hancorn Smith, which I thought was great. What a name. Um, but anyway, she was the middle one of the children. And then at, at the age of 10, her eldest brother, who's I think quite a bit older than her, maybe 10 years, and the father went to Southern Rhodesia, which it was at the time, I gather, outside Bulawayo. So mm. she always had this connection to Southern Rhodesia. And, of course, she kind of fulfills it all with naming her son um, – after Cecil John Rhodes. And, um, yeah, so she landed up in R- Southern Rhodesia and then there was this kind of migration between there, Cape Town. She went to school for a bit. Then she went back to Rhodesia and then back to Durban, to Durban for, uh, to start studying nursing. So for a poor family, which I think they were or like not, not wealthy at all, she traveled quite a bit from an early age. So by and, the time, sorry to interrupt you, but for women at that, in that era, um, it, it wasn't like life was a box of chocolates. And even if you were a woman who came from a reasonably good family, there was no guarantee that 
you'd be able to sustain a certain kind of lifestyle. You were constantly on the lookout for some way to improve your life. Um, men were mostly predatory. <laughs> it's fair to say that. I don't, sure, I don't sure. think it's an unkind thing to say. And you had to be very wily. You agree? Of course. Oh. Of course. And I think she, I think she took up the challenge. I mean, one thing that'll come out with, if, if you read the book is that she was a very strong woman. I mean, she was, she proved it in her trial. She was this larger than life woman who was very premeditated and she knew exactly what she wanted in life. And I think that started off early. So, you know, when she was, uh, so the, the murder spree starts with her or possible murder spree. Yes, of course, we she's don't... only, you know, she's only mur- guilty of one, of one murder. And, and the, the two husbands who a lot of people believe she killed as well, those she was, there was no evidence. It was never taken to trial. Well, there was plenty of evidence, but there was like no real connection. Um, and, you know, and also people talk about a serial killer. Daisy was a serial killer, which she wasn't. She was, mm. she was, she probably killed up to 10 people or maybe more. Who knows? But she was only found guilty of one. So technically she was not a serial killer. So, um, yeah, and I think she was, she was a very, very strong woman from an early age. All right. So let, let's talk about these men in her life because that obviously is where the, the story starts to unravel a little bit. Um, the first guy, Bert. He, Bert Fuller. Bert Fuller. She met him in Rhodesia. Yeah. So he was a friend of her brother's and he was working as a, as they called them a native commissioner on one of the mines in, I think it was Zambia, which would have been Northern Rhodesia. Right. And, um, he Copper kind of probably. took her. Yeah. And he took a liking to her. And so she obviously wasn't that unattractive. And well, at uh, that stage, <laughs> maybe, and, maybe killing takes its toll on you. <laughs> yeah. Um, although as a friend of mine said to me, you know, on a bad morning, she looks like Daisy Demelka. So, uh, and she's quite an attractive woman. Okay. So well, I think I, I've actually heard women saying that before as a joke, but then they're referring to that one picture, which again is very unfair. Yeah. Did you find any other like photographs or anything? Because I mean, the photographs that are most printable are in the book. So the one yeah. has her coming out of court waving. To no, the no, crowd no, but and, I mean, like those are all around that time. Yeah. But they were, they weren't like uh, little mementos or keepsakes that she, that they'd found in her possessions. Afterwards. No, I mean, there's one picture in the book of her with, with Rhodes when he was about eight years old, but it's right. also kind of very blurry. So, I mean, you've got to remember as again, they, she was famous during that trial and nobody started going, kind of gathering stuff if no. there was even stuff to gather at that point. Jeez. So, um, yeah, so it started with Bert Fuller and, um, but she never know, married him. She, the wedding date was set, but then of course he died on the day of they were supposed to get married because he had, <laughs> he had gotten blackwater fever, which comes from malaria. And, you know, part of her modus operandi was to, like make sure that her victims had a secondary possibility of they could have died from. And of course, if this guy was in a hospital with blackwater fever, no, not much chance of surviving, you know, she could help it along. And so she inherited, that was her first inheritance. Well, it's convenient, right? So this is where people start to, to say, Hmm, yeah, that's a bit suspicious, but I mean, women at that point in, you know, a very difficult part of the world because this was a difficult place to eke out an existence and women had to rely on men. Like they, they, they're very few independent, strong single mothers in the world at this point. Mm-hmm. And the only way to assure yourself of an income or of some kind of security sometimes was to get married. And it might have been more useful to not actually have to love the guy or stick around him for very long. 
but there, there was a lot of suspicion of this at that point. It wasn't just Daisy. There were lots of women who were, you know, some husband just mysteriously died and people would kind of, oh, well, too bad. She was it's, just unfortunate that it happened a number of times and there seemed to be a pattern. It's interesting because the year that is kind of Daisy was supposed to get married to this guy, there was a woman who died in America by the name of Belle Gunness and she died in a fire in her house. And when they went into the house, she, her body was found decapitated with her three sh- children with her and they were beyond kind of recognition. So, and you know, forensics wasn't. No. It exist at that stage. So they presumed it was her and her children. And I mean, the theory was that she actually had, that was one of her other victims she decapitated and she had fled. But then they started digging around the, the, the property. And this was in Indiana, which was, you know, it was also a, a hard place to live. And they found at least 11 bodies in the, in the property around the house. And they think that Bell probably killed about 40 people in the end. And she would attract people to come to this farm, single men to come and marry her. And then when they arrived at the farm, of course, you know, something would fall on their heads and, you know, she would get rid of the body and then take the money and then the next person. And, you know, people didn't trace these, somebody went missing and it was a lot easier back in those days. So you're right. You know, I mean, Men became victims, you know, as much as they made women victims. Absolutely. And it was a living. <laughs> I mean, this no, was kind was, of a way to get a living going. You it know? definitely was. Hey? But I think in Daisy's case, she was she was definitely more premeditated. I mean, she went about it in a, a much more – I mean, she, she lived with the one guy for 14 years. She had four children or five children from him. Well, don't jump the story. And by the way, I don't want to give away – too much of what's yes. going on in the book because we want people to buy it and read yes. it. And South Africans are still fascinated with this story. So I don't think there's going to be any shortage of people buying the book, but let's just stick to Bert for a second because he only left her a hundred pounds, but in those days, a hundred pounds is a lot of money. A lot of money. It was really a lot of, and I mean, her, a lot of people said he left her more than that, but, and, and also there was the question of whether she, that oh. will was um, <laughs> written the day after he died. Forgery. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, that was all kind of, there were a lot of questions that were never answered up during the court because there were so many questions to answer. So it's like, that's not actually, you know, we've got to get to the nitty gritty of this. So, you know, Bert's will got left behind. All right. So then the next man comes along and this is only about what, two years after it was actually a year. It was a year. <laughs> she moved quickly. Yeah, she moved. Uh, and she, she, she fell in love. Before. She yeah. met him before. This is William Carley, right? Yeah, William Carl, and he she met before she um, the first one died. The the fiance died, so she had met him at a bo- boarding house in Bertrams, stacking them up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, then within a year of. Uh, the first one dying, she married him and so began her life in Johannesburg. Okay, and he, he wasn't a very wealthy man. He was a plumber, though. He had some skills. Yeah, and they had, just, how many kids did they have? They had five. But I mean, he was he was clearly a man who who was careful about his money. Right. You know, so the money he did earn, they made, they made it like last. And there was, you know, he had a house and he had things to leave her. Hmm. So maybe by the time he had built something up, that was time to... Or maybe she just got tired of having children. Maybe. Um, but either way, how did he get dispatched, uh, whether by natural causes or by Daisy DeMelka? Yeah, that you'll have to read the book to find out. Because okay? <laughs> there is a pattern here. Yes, she did a it. Pattern. You said just now that she always had like a backup reason. 
she why always, that person might die. She, there was always a set of circumstances at the deathbed, which was always, there were three things that happened at the deathbed. There was always a backup mm-hmm. uh, illness. There was always a lot of people, a lot of witnesses she called in from around the neighborhood. So there would be conflicting views of what happened. All right. And then there were always a lot of doctors called in. Hmm. And the doctors always each had their own reason for why this person was reacting the way they, they were on the bed. And of course, arsenic and strychnine have hmm. certain kind of reactions. And as she, as her lawyer said, he thinks that she picked up a lot of information about not only doctors, but poison at the, at the hospitals. And one of the things she discovered was that doctors didn't really know that much about poison. So if they were called into a sickbed, they wouldn't know that that was the reaction you'd get from strychnine versus it was he was having a heart attack yeah. or he had a bad kidney or right. he had, you know. I mean, if she'd lived a bit longer, she would have had a field day with the radiation poisoning that you could try later on. Yeah. Polonium, the stuff the Russians are doing today. Yeah. You know? exactly. All right. But there's a, there's a, there's another either very tragic or very demonic part of the story too, is that those five children that you mentioned, uh, only one, was it one that made mm-hmm. it to adulthood? Yeah. That was Rhodes. Yeah. The rest of them, two died in you know, infancy. The yeah, other one. Those, so the oldest one lived to five. Ish. So, um, and I mean, the biggest question was why did she let him live? And why was it him? And why had she chosen this very specific name for him? I mean, the others had names like Lester and Eric. So, and why had she chosen? I mean, it was like he was the chosen child. That's one if she, she killed the others. Yes. I mean, again, we've just got to. <laughs> yeah. We, even though she's dead and gone and we're not protecting anyone's reputation and no one's going to be sued if she did kill them, but also for a mother to do that to a kid, you know, you're talking about probably the most heinous kind of crime because people reserve an unusual amount of hostility for a bad mother. Um, you know, if, if two re- related men kill each other over a woman or something, it's too bad. If, uh, if there's, that's there's fratricide or patricide too bad. But the fact that a mother might actually kill a child is probably what made this so horrific, especially when it eventually got to trial around. Yeah, that they said story. I mean they said that the people who had it in for her it really wasn't so much the husbands, although the single woman who went to court and like thought, how did she manage to get three husbands and we've got none? <laughs> Which, you know, Herman Charles Bosman, who was involved <laughs> yes. in the trial you know, said, you know, here these, these spinsters and whatever were like paying for her blood because they thought, how did she get all these? You know, she's not very attractive and she's got three men mm. and then she kills them. And, you know, but it wasn't so much the men, the deaths of the men. It was the son. They said that was kind of, that was just too much for everybody. And of course, poison, they say poison is the most, if there can be like a hierarchy of how to kill somebody, like poison is at the top of it because it's the only thing you can do nothing about to prevent. You can't defend no. yourself. You don't know it's coming. And that makes it the worst. Oh, I mean, if you think back to history, like these uh, kings and pharaohs who employed tasters just because they were terrified of being poisoned, where did she get the arsenic? It's not like that stuff's just lying around. Well, of course, you know, arsenic was the thing that she used last. So strychnine was really, really the well, poison even strychnine, of choice. Where do you find that? You, you can't just go into the chemist and uh, order some, even in the early 1900s. Well, you know, until 1930, 
um, in Rhodesia or southern Rhodesia, you could buy strychnine almost over the counter. So it was there was no limitations on strychnine. And the what only, did they use it for? To treat animals or something? No, to kill animals. Yeah, yeah but I mean, it was used in a veterinary, yes, veterinary yeah, capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, with yeah. all the farmers up there and the wild animals, they were trying to keep away from their cattle and so forth and the vermin. So they would use it and they would color it pink so that it was identifiable. Um, you know, and then when the court case came around, the, one of the arguments was that she had kept strychnine from those days, you know, and of course the judge mm. found that unacceptable. But of course then, you know, the thing with poison is you've got to link the poison with the person. And that's the most difficult thing. Yeah. You know, where do they get the poison? And, you know, even if you can't find the poison itself, the person that she bought it from, got it from. So, I mean, it's a very difficult thing to prove. And as you said, you know, the, the forensic sciences were not really a thing yet. I mean, I think famously it was probably, you know, Sherlock Holmes, those stories that got people started on all of that. And that was around about the same time. Yeah. But I mean, the very good forensics, what did it start in the 60s, 70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, no, this was very, this was very amateur, and you couldn't sort of do a tissue sample and test for arsenic. No, but I found, what I found it quite interesting, they did quite a few tests which came out in the court case, you know, and they were like, they found that the flask of coffee that the arsenic had been in that, he, that Rhodes had taken to work with him, I mean, that it had been cleaned to such an extent that there were scratch marks everywhere. And so they had gone, they had done as many tests as they could, I think. And, uh, testing the packets of, of, uh, arsenic that they'd taken in from various, cause they wanted to test arsenic coming in from different, uh, people Places, yeah. and follicles of hair and fingernails. Well, they still, I think they still use hair and fingernails to test for those kinds of poisons now. I mean, famously, Napoleon is supposed to have been killed by the wallpaper. You know, which would have had traces. There was green wallpaper yeah, yeah, yeah. that they used in those days yeah. that, that supposedly killed him. I mean, this is this is stuff that obviously is a hundred years before that, even. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's what they said. The babies might have died of her babies because there was always the chance the children of that age uh, in era would have had cribs painted with uh, lead-based lead paint. paint. Yeah toys and they would chew on them, and that's what uh, gave I mean, them the convulsions. You know, there were still women using makeup into the. 20th century and that makeup was often lead based too or mercury even mm -hmm. worse mm -hmm. you know to get those sort of white complexions and that could have killed many more people than we know about they just so never course, did the test so of course when you've got commercial products that also give you <laughs> yeah. the possibility of poison it's like okay well let's make use of this but i think and again don't want to give away too much here because i do think it's for anyone who's fascinated by the story as so many people are um it's pretty much clear that we can't exonerate her that ship has sailed there were way too many things that just looked suspicious and even in just the trial of the one that she was convicted of murder that the son that she was convicted of poisoning even in that there's substantial evidence that makes it very very difficult for any modern jury modern scientist modern judge to say look daisy you know you're off well, you know, if, of course, if you had the, if you didn't have the, the pharmacist who came in from the other side of the city to say, well, she bought it from me. Uh, and the, it was kind of total coincidence that he saw a picture of her in the newspaper because she had bought it under another name. There never would have been a trial. So she could have actually carried on a bit longer. But there's a lot of premeditated stuff going on here. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we find out all of this in the trial. But before that, people were none the wiser, and she had gone to extraordinary lengths mm -hmm. to cover up things, to make it very 
uh, blurry. And as you said, there were different witnesses with different stories, different doctors called in for all of these things, where she bought the stuff. All of this is very much the work of someone who's thought about it long and hard. Yeah, but I mean, for me, it's, it's, for me, it's you have to kind of put yourself in a very, very different period. And like the way they thought back then, it's like Dorothea Croft who comes up in the book, mm. who was the first white woman who was executed for murder in South Africa in 1921. I mean, she literally went around telling people she was going to kill this guy. And when he died and he disappeared, nobody actually brought up the fact that she had been threatening to kill this guy for ages. So, I mean, it was a very, very different world where I guess people kind of were more gullible or didn't want to believe the, all these circumstances. Anyway, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And the trial was uh, 30 days, so about a month, mm -hmm. which, you know, by today's standards is quick. You know, now trials take much, much longer. We've got such court backlogs that it would take us years to eventually convict someone of something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately let's, let's just fast forward to probably the most, I mean, I find always the grisly death of these people, the most interesting part of it. So she was hanged, which was a pretty normal, um, sentence for someone accused mm -hmm. of murder. Mm -hmm. Um, were there any special circumstances in that death that you, you want to give us a clue about? How do you mean special I mean, circumstances? I mean, you know, the description, people always want to know how they were hanged, uh, how long they lasted, whether or not they were witnesses to the hanging. Those kinds of things are always the interesting side stories that people are mostly fascinated by. Well, I mean, there, there are descriptions in the book of uh, the way the hanging took place. And, this is what I mean, I'm after. Yeah, I mean, there's quite, <laughs> there's quite a lot of gruesome stuff about uh, how it happened. And I mean, not of her personally, but every person that went to the gallows in Pretoria Central would have gone through the same, the same experience. And that's and, now a museum. I mean, you can go and, well, was for a little while when I was there. Yeah. And, I, went, I popped in and saw it once and it, it was a pretty harrowing place. They obviously, since Daisy Demelka, they used it as a place to execute political prisoners yeah so it no, became I, much more important for that reason well i think it, i mean i think it was it was like the place of execution for everybody yes. i mean there were people of various crimes throughout you know, since it was built in i think 1906 so um and that job of the hangman i mean that's a whole other story yeah i mean i don't i don't get into all of that i mean the, the hanging takes place right at the end and i mean i do throughout the book give details of other people's hangings because you know, there are these other criminals who are brought into the story. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, but there's a lot of that detail. Well, what I think is really also useful here is that you, you give us a much wider context for this because you. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually very filmic, the whole thing, you know, and I kind of, in my head, I've been going through who would I, who would I want to have play this and who would you have to play Daisy? Oh, that's, you know what the answer would be. The monster. She's got a little bit of that Daisy energy. It's such a, and it's such a complex role. You know, you've got this woman Oof. who is, who women love and she loves women. Mm. She's highly sexed. Yeah. Um, She's got to be dowdy and yet like sexy. attractive mm -hmm. and sexy and men, men want her at the same time. She's got to be a mother. Um, I mean, I just think it's. 
she has to sit in court as this very authoritative, not authoritative, but a person who's in control. You know, I can imagine her. And she wasn't one of these people who sat with her tail between her legs and no. was a victim. And she sat there paying extreme attention to like the most important people that came up who could do her damage and uh you know and, and smiling at the judge's wife when she came to when she came to uh, listen to the court hearing and to uh i mean it was just a, it would be a plum roll and but some of the other people as well like there's a character who comes up in the story andrew gibson who is a british guy who's like a just he could do nothing but crime from the earliest age. He was a British orphan, came out to South Africa, found plenty pickings, loved fraud, you know, would forge uh, Australian bonds and try and sell them off. Then he became a kind of masqueraded as a doctor, carrying out operations in the east side of Johannesburg. And people loved him because he was this like very friendly charlatan. And so he pops in and out of the story all the time and, then we have to start the book, of course, with the Foster Gang, which is a story that a lot of people know about. The Foster Gang just kind of held uh, Johannesburg hostage for. I mean, a they're a whole book on their own, right? They are, they are, and I mean, it's it's a wonderful it's way a, to start. Way more interesting, if you ask me, than the standards. Well, I mean, it's kind of like history repeats <laughs> itself. You know, somebody was saying to me, "Don't you find the? Don't you find like the Foster Gang?" Uh, uh, the precursor to the cash and transit heists, you know, yeah. that, that create yeah. this panic and hysteria amongst people, you know, and, and to know that Johannesburg was living with this since 1913 and even before then. But I mean, the Foster gang was 1913, 14, and that's when it really started. It hit the media. Mm. This, thousands of people went out to Kensington to, to see the, the showdown between the foster gang and the police and snipers. And it was just like entertainment on their doorstep. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like a, a night at the movies. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, and, and, and that's what they say court cases were back then. It was, mm. it was a, like where you can go and see. Well, real life drama. Yeah. People crying and, and, and standing on the table. Why I think your, your book is so apposite for the time we're in at the moment is people are fascinated by the stuff. You just look at our channels like the crime channel are just getting the, all the ratings on TV at the moment. And of course there was, there was that show, that documentary, I suppose that they did in the nineties about Daisy DeMelka. There was a, I think there was a TV was series. It a fictionalized in the, version? No, it was a TV series of like four episodes with Susan Kutzer. And she That's played, the one. Yeah. Yes. And did, I mean, did you watch that or did no. you avoid it? No, no, no. I mean, I kind of stayed away from stuff like that because I didn't want to be influenced too much. Right. I wanted to go to the original sources. And of course, in those, you have to fictionalize a bit. And um, yeah. And the other hand, it doesn't actually have to be fictionalized. It's so strange. No, it's, 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 it writes itself almost, but you've done an excellent job of explaining it to those people. First of all, who are novices to her story. And second of all, to those people who think they know her story, where you correct a lot of, uh, incorrect assumptions and you help people really navigate the extraordinary tale of this very, very bizarre woman. And I think there are probably many Daisy DeMelkers in the world that we don't know about. Yeah, I, I also think for me, it was kind of a surprise when I was doing the story about how big it was in the world. You know, when she was, when she, her trial was going on, she was publicized in the major newspapers of the world. So there, when she was executed, she was in the London Times next to Manchuria, the League of Nations, Hitler coming to power. Big story. I mean, what kind of killer got that kind of publicity? And, uh, as Sarah Gertrude Millen, a uh, South African writer who comes up in the story and w- went to the court case said, you know, she just hasn't gotten the publicity 
that she deserved on a world stage. But do you think that the fascination had more to do with the fact that she was a woman or the circumstances of the murder in the case? No, I think it's this, it was in a colony. It was that, oh. that colonial mentality, like everything that's out in the colonies is not worth the time for, you know, England or for America. No, no, they, but the reason she did get attention, that's the reason she probably oh, that, didn't. Yeah. But the reason, the reason she did, I mean, being a woman and again, a woman I, who kills her own child, that's bound to get you headlines. I think there were, there were various things. I mean, firstly, it was that she was a woman. Secondly, that it was her child. Thirdly, that it was, um, poison. Mm. Um, and I think it was, as it was also what was going on in entertainment at the time, there was this huge change going on mm. from silent movies to talky movies. And this was kind of when people went to trials for entertainment, he was like this incredible story unfolding right before them. And so they had Jeez. to get to the trial. So thousands of people would camp outside the court trying to get in. And they kind of every day, there were just these huge tracts of text in the newspapers of Daisy. I mean, it's actually amazing to look at a newspaper and, and see a, an entire page of just what went on at the trial. I mean, you, you mentioned in the book also, uh, Dickie Malaliu, uh, Gwen Tolpit. Yeah. Um, you talk about, you know, the, the, the Sarah Gertrude Millen character you just mentioned now, who was an actual reporter. No, she was, I mean, she was a well-known novelist at the time. I mean, she would be on the level of, bestsellers today and she was you know franklin delano roosevelt wiped eleanor she was a favorite writer for wow. her. she was she stayed at their house when she went to america she's one of those writers who for various reasons she's become like not known in south africa and i won't get into that but she <clears throat> she was very important in covering daisy's case along with herman charles bosman so she took the side where daisy was guilty hmm. <clears throat> herman charles bosman was trying to get her freed because right. he was anti-capital punishment. He thought she was being given, being given a raw deal. Um, and so they were, I like the fact that there were two writers who were very famous. He was less famous than her at the time. Amazing. And he, they were drawn into this trial. So, I mean, it shows the kind of the hugeness of her personality and what she had achieved, that both of them were drawn to it. And, um, yeah, so that was, and you, you mentioned Dickie Malalier. So why I included that case? So he was a very handsome young Oxford student who came out to South Africa at the age of 20 and kind of was led astray by this woman in, in, in Natal, what it was at the time in Takastat. And, um, they went on this kind of Bonnie and Clyde rampage through the country which was just fascinating and i mean people were really interested in this whole thing of i mean they weren't robin hood or anything they weren't doing any good but it mm -hmm. was like wow they were real adventurers and they were you know staying in hotels for nothing giving false names stealing a car driving off and they landed up in peter maritzburg and they murdered somebody there and their trial became this huge sensation and why i included the trial was the lawyer that actually got him off murder was Harry Morris, who is a huge character in the book. Fantastic lawyer, theatrical, kind of very strange looking, you know, with his big glasses and his mop of curly hair, mm. and his probably disheveled waistcoat and toga. And he went straight on from Malalia to, to Daisy. And his kind of shtick, and I can say that because he was also Jewish, which is great, um, was he wanted an unwinnable case. He wanted cases that could really challenge him. So he would take on murderers and rapists wow. and 
people in licit diamond buying. And, you know, because those people needed lawyers too. Right. Because they might have been accused. Absolutely. Like falsely. So um, he went straight from Malalia with this, with, it was a sensational trial, also got incredible mileage in the newspapers to Daisy. And he did his best. I mean, you'll have to read the book to see sure. what happened in the trial, but um, he did a great, great job. Well, and she had these great, she had like the best judge in the country on, on her case. She had the best lawyer. His assistant was just, he became famous afterwards, Issy Maisel's, the yes, best prosecutor, best prosecutor, Cyril Jarvis. So it was, I mean, can, one, one can really imagine it as this movie. Like you can see the trial happening at the end with these like larger than life characters. Well, I would, are, I would suggest Hollywood is always on the lookout for stories should be knocking on your door sometime <laughs> soon. Uh, Ted Puerta, you've done an excellent job, as did all those lawyers of, of doing the best you could in an unwinnable case. But in this case, I mean, you, you think you know the story until you've read the story. So Daisy DeMelka hiding among killers in the city of gold by Ted Buerta. It's a great pleasure to see you and to speak to you. Thank today. you very much for having me. Thank you. Cliffcentral.com.